0: Well, if you would, turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, as we wrap up our study. Philippians 4, 10 is where we are. <clears throat> if you have just joined us, you will not have to take the exam at the end of the hour, but uh, at least let me give you an overview of where we've been. That might be helpful so that you can see this. So this is not in the notes. This is free today, and I hope you can see this. I don't, is this in the way? I don't know. Um, We started with an introduction that's typical. These writers didn't write in a vacuum, right? They're going to to use a format that the reader is very familiar with. So in most uh, letters, there's an opening, a greeting, an introduction. Then we move to Paul's situation. He talks about uh, the state, I am, I'm content. He's going to come back to that in chapter 4. Then we move to the main body of the letter, and that was the circumstances surrounding the Philippians. He calls for unity. Later in chapter 4, he's going to identify two individuals who are uh, not unified, <clears throat> and he'll deal with that. He'll deal with doctrinal purity because the church is being attacked from the outside, not on the in, and a call for righteous living. Remember, this church was established on Paul's witch journey? Second, uh, it's his first time he goes to Europe. Uh, with the gospel, Paul does, and the church at Philippi, uh, as you know from your study of the book of Acts, uh, there's tension when he arrives, but uh, there is a nucleus of believers that follow the gospel, and so he calls for righteous living, righteous conduct there at the end of chapter 4. Where we are now is the conclusion to the book, what you would expect. Uh, He's going to wrap up, highlight some themes that we've already looked at, and I've entitled this A Model for Contentment uh, because uh, we've already looked at contentment in this book, but he's going to come back to that. And it ties so well with all the aspects he's addressed, joy in particular, righteous living, and unity. They all fall within this larger umbrella of contentment, and that's where we are in the narrative. So uh, let's, let's jump in at chapter 4, verse 10, and then uh, we'll talk about some of the problems (laughs) with this text, all right? So chapter 4, verse 10, it says, I have great joy. It's the first time he's used the adjective with joy. Uh, It ties, again, with the whole theme of this book of joy, and we talked about that. It's not a feeling, uh, but it's an attitude, right? Uh, I'm not very joyful when I only have half a bowl of ice cream. Well, that's actually happy would be a better word than joy, Right? Because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before, but you had no opportunity to do anything. A sense of helplessness, right? Paul's where at the time of this writing? <clears throat> He's in prison, most likely in Rome, I argued. He's imprisoned in Rome, and he, he sends this letter, and they're concerned, and they, eventually they send someone to him. Who do they send? Just review, Paphroditus, right, with most likely some goods, some finances to help Paul as he's under house arrest there in Rome. He says in verse 11, I'm not saying this because I am in need, which is amazing, because remember we just said he's in prison, for I've learned to be content in my circumstance. I've experienced times of need, times of or abundance. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of contentment. That's an amazing statement. We'll come back to that. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I'm able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. Just in case they didn't catch uh, his gratitude, he expresses it there. Verse 15, and as you Philippians know, at the beginning of the gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, that's a region where Philippi is located, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessaloniki, on more than one occasion, you sent something for my need. I do not say this because I'm seeking a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. For I received everything and I have plenty. I have all I need because I received from Epaphroditus what you sent." A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And my God will supply your every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And then he breaks out in a doxology, May glory be given to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. And then he closes out the letter, which is typical of ancient epistolary literature. Give greetings to all the saints in Christ Jesus, the brothers With me here, send greetings as well, which most likely would entail uh, Timothy, right? Uh, Luke, others that are with him. All the saints greet you, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. And we'll get to that. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's interesting when you study these uh, closing words, there is never an official thank you from Paul to the church at Philippi. So much so that some scholars argue it's Paul's thankless thanks. He, he says he's joyful, but he never uses the term thank, thank you. And so scholars have long debated this, and whichever view you take is going to taint how you interpret these verses. So let me give you three major views. There's more than this, as you might expect. And then I'll give you where I, I'm going to go with our study today. The first of these is that what we're dealing with, it's, it's giving to Paul is a touchy subject. The argument is laid out, and it's, it's there in your notes, that Paul, he, he's very careful not to take resources from individuals. One, the gospel's free, and he doesn't want to taint that by looking as if he's charging for it. Secondly, he doesn't want to be accused that he's doing this all for personal gain. And, and there's places in his writings that would seem to clearly echo that, right? Where he's very careful with finances. I always said the pastor of a church should never know what people are giving. <laughs> I'm a strong believer in that. Uh, they, they shouldn't have their hand in the till. They shouldn't know what's going on. Uh, that that's, just keeps things nice and neat. <laughs> and that's where Paul's at. I, I, he's, I, I don't want to do this. And so the interpretation is that what Paul is doing is he's actually kind of spanking them a little bit uh, and, and that's why he even waits to the end of the letter to bring up their gift. I mean, he's waited four chapters. Uh, Is because he just you know, mm, thank you, but we're not really going to go there to great levels. Uh, that's one view. I, I'm I. To me, there's too much here that would indicate he's still he's still grateful. For what they're doing. And I I struggle with that view, but that is a common view, and it's held by some leading commentaries that I've been using in our study of this book. Another one which doesn't get much traction, but there are a few who hold to it, and that is that in a Greco-Roman world, when two friends are writing to one another, you don't have to express your gratitude. It's just assumed, right? Well, uh, as I mentioned there in your notes, the context of the letter doesn't fit that the genre style doesn't fit that and the relationship between Paul and his readers is more than just friendship he calls them friends but he doesn't use the term that the secular world would use and he also calls them brothers and sisters so <clears throat> no i don't think so this is the view that i land you can disagree and when you get to heaven you you can we can discuss it further but a desire to give god the credit I think what Paul's doing here, uh, and this is a view that's been recently espoused, well, 2011, but that's recent in biblical scholarship, um, <clears throat> by David Brianes, he, he argues, and it's there in your notes, but he's arguing that <clears throat> for Paul, the source of all goods is God, and that the church at Philippi is really just a conduit of God's blessings. And so he just doesn't want to honor the conduit, he wants to honor God, and he wants to make sure that the Philippians understand their role in this greater equation. <clears throat> he writes, this is there at the bottom of the notes, Paul attributes every accomplishment in their lives, uh, and by the way, this just fits so well with his stress in chapter 2 that we walk in humility like Christ, right? Right? Uh, he's saying, you know, all of their, especially this, the mundane task of providing aid to the creative activity of God, the ultimate giver of their gift. And if God is the ultimate giver in this relationship, then the Philippians operate as mediators of His divine benevolence. I think this fits best with the whole context, as I mentioned earlier in the, in this uh, paragraph. Th- there's still an implicit reference to gratitude in this section, isn't there? He talks about the joy that he gives, how you've, you've done well. He said only you gave uh, when he referring to the whole churches in that region of Macedonia. So to me, uh, that's the view I'm going to take. Are there any questions on that? This is how, I know you're going, really, is this a big to-do? It is. (laughs) Uh, Commentators spend a lot of ink uh, trying to discuss which view it is. But I land towards this one. I, I think that's what's going on. It's driving this section. He wants to point the Philippians to God. And that may be also why there's a bit of disunity in the camp, right? It could be that you have Odie and Stinky trying to take credit for certain things. He says, no, no, no. Even your talents, your abilities, your finances, it's all God. And so he wants to, to, to highlight that. He's also going to highlight in his own life how it's all from God. Yeah, Eugene. Well, I, I I would agree with you, and I think a, a clear reading lands in my position. <laughs> How's that? So there you are. So walking in humility, we're gonna do, We're gonna go with view three, because it, it it is consistent. with what he wrote to the Corinthians. What do you have that you were not given? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and, and especially in the immediate context of the whole issue of contentment because that's where he's going to go with this so i I think he's he's still trying to teach the philippians in the midst of his gratitude to them but he tempers it by saying listen you're just a conduit which is a reminder to all of us right all that we have whether it's a saint nicholas project or whatever we're doing uh, what we have is because the lord bestowed his grace on us right Well, let's go back to the text then uh, that was enough of haphoditz's theory unfortunately though it's going to taint how we read the text so forgive me for that but that's where we are as we interpret this section paul i love this he he has really shown his heart uh for ministry throughout this epistle and this section is no exception because he's going to talk about the characteristics here this is on page two of your notes but he highlights, number one, his ministry is free from any dependence on human resources. That's an amazing statement when he's in prison, right? You know, uh, he's, I, I, I'm, look at what he says. Uh, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And verse, why can he say that? Because in verse 19, notice what he says God will supply your every need. You, you, you thought you were meeting my need, a specific one. God's going to supply all your needs. Well, thank you for though for your gift, <laughs> you know. But the bigger picture is God, right? In this whole equation, and and as I mentioned there in verse ten of your notes, the Lord is the third party. He is the keeper of the resources, and so Brian states all along been taking careful thought for Paul's welfare. I mean, he's not. The Philippians have certainly been caring for him, and Paul doesn't want to diminish that. But at the same time, he's listen. I, I, I don't really need anything. Of what God has done for me. And Paul has learned, and, and this is the secret here, which we're going to get to in a minute. He's learned if I have great wealth, I'm, I know how to, to live, and if I don't have anything, I know how to live. And I believe Paul was extremely wealthy growing up. I mean, his parents, Roman citizens, as Jews, which is extremely rare in the first century, we talked about Paul's lineage, etc., they sent him to the Ivy League school of, uh, of that day abroad to study so it's like sending your child to Oxford or Cambridge right to go study for years on out not just four years so you can imagine the expense on that that bill right and I, I'm sure he didn't stay at the motel six either uh, and and with the best teachers of the day right he a good work ethic too. well he had a good which is a whole nother story but yes I mean but he says whatever state I am he says I am content. And you get to this word here in verses 12 and 13. Look at this. He says, I've experienced, as we mentioned, times. But he says, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of contentment. That's a loaded term. In the Greco-Roman world, we had these what called our mystery religions. And if you're inducted after a certain point, they would reveal the secrets of the society. I guess it's a little like some of the groups in our culture today. But... He uses that term uh, in reference to Christianity and and the reference more specifically to this issue of contentment. What's the secret? Well, he's clear. Self-sufficiency is based upon a recognition of divine dependency. (laughs) My sufficiency is in Christ. He he even started this section. Notice verse 10. That's how he started this whole section. I have great joy. What's the prepositional phrase? In the... Lord, right? It's rooted all in Christ. And he said, that's why I can say I am content. Right? That's why I'm not losing a wheel off my tricycle going down the hill, because I know God's in charge and my resources stem from him. Uh, As I mentioned there in your notes, the secret resides not in Paul's inner strength, but his dependence on the Lord. And then I have a reference, which how uh, you you cited it? Sh- that should be Second Corinthians, not Second Four. Excuse me, there is a typo error there. Um, I will talk to my wife who edits my notes. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Uh, I knew she was tired when she edited them because she never misses a thing. Second uh, Corinthians twelve verses nine and ten. Paul writes to a church that is less than uh, ideal for Paul. <laughs> Philippa he, he's he holds dear to his heart. The church at Corinth has been a pain in the petunia, right? And he says in verse 9, My grace is enough for you. This is what the Lord says to him. For my power is made perfect in weakness, so then I will boast most gladly about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Remember what Paul said in Philippians earlier? "I glory in the sufferings, the opportunities to, to experience the sufferings of Christ. So, yes, my contentment is here. And Hawthorne, in his commentary, this is there in the middle of the page of your notes, Paul thus never allowed his weakness or perceived weaknesses to be an excuse for inactivity or for a failure to attempt the impossible task. Paul isn't some super saint. He's a guy just like us. He has his struggles. Read the first part of 2 Corinthians. Right? So at one point I even thought, why go on living? <laughs> I have to deal with you all. <laughs> I mean, that's what he's saying in 2 Corinthians, right? I'm so sick of this mess. This isn't worth it. You've been in ministry very long. <laughs> you can echo those same words, right? <laughs> I got some chuckles. You understand what I'm saying. That, Yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that financial because that's that's good. We'll get to that in a minute. That yeah, we'll we'll get there. Um, well, that's what uh, yeah. I'll, I'll, that's what my kids say. You just go ahead, Dad. Um, notice what he says here uh, in the this verb. He says, "I have learned the secret. This this knowing, as I mentioned there in your notes, uh, the the Greek tense lets us know this wasn't something all of a sudden the light bulb came on and he got it. (laughs) This indicates that there's been a process. It's taken time. And Paul's still learning, I think he would tell you. But he could still say to the church at Philippi, follow in my steps. You can imitate me. And we've talked about that as well. And that's a huge statement. Well, in verses 15 and 16, and by the way, 14 again kind of wraps it up, and just in case he sounds ungrateful and has lost his manners, he says, well, you did well to share with me, so well done. But then he comes back in verses 15 and 16 here with one very long Greek sentence, uh, and uh, he, he, there's two things he highlights that they know as a group of believers. He says, first of all, you know, you're the only one who helped me. I highlighted that when I was uh, uh, at Thessaloniki, but even before that, he says, you. He says, you Philippians, which is an interesting term here, this is the only time he'll use a Greek translation of the Latin. And you go, why would he do that? Because that's the title they called themselves being a colony. That term indicated dignity. It indicated status. And you go, why would Paul have used that term? I think, as I mentioned there in your notes, the believers were living up to the dignity that they held, the title that they that, that was given to them as being part of this colony and he says you know that you were the only ones who helped me in this region. Second Corinthians turn back to this uh, and I love that Paul <laughs> in his his letter to the church at Corinth will cite the Philippians. Uh, I think it's like nana nana, nana see what they do. Uh, they got it together. Why can't you be like your brothers and sisters over here, right? Now, he doesn't mention Philippi by name, but he mentions the region. Verses 8 and 9. I, I, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so that I could serve you, which is ironic because the church at Corinth was loaded. Loaded. It had two harbors. It sat on the, it, it, Corinth sat on the Aegean and the Adriatic. That, that, that town was super wealthy. And we know they had wealthy people involved in the church. Erastus, remember, the city treasurer of Corinth? In fact, if I took you to Corinth, even today, the Eras- there's a, an inscription that mentions him by name. And, and to be a city treasurer, you had to buy that office. So in other words, Erastus was of the wealthy of the wealthy, and he belonged to the church at Corinth. And he says, I had to borrow from other churches so I could do ministry here at Corinth. He says, when I was with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia, right, fully supplied my needs. So he says, number one, you at the church at Philippi know you're the only one who helped me. He said, Secondly, you you helped me even when I was in Thessaloniki. And this, by the way, is a photo of the ruins of, of Philippi today, northern part of Greece. And he said, You're the only one who who helped me while I was in Thessaloniki in Acts chapter seventeen. Now we have no reference of this in Scripture apart from this passage. But give you a, a little view here. Uh, this, of course, is all of uh, modern Greece today, but you can see where Philippi is. Let's see if I can do this. Yeah, here's Philippi. It's a, uh, about a two-hour car drive to Thessaloniki. So it's not far away. And that whole region here is Macedonia, all right? Philippi was kind of the, the mothership. Um of that region. And uh, he said, you know, while I was a few hours away, you you, you sent aid. You, you, you helped provide for me while I was there. And he said, no one else did that. And, and, and so he goes, you, you know how you have done these things for me. And for that, I greatly appreciate. He ties it back into his, his ministry again, though, in verse 17. Notice what he says. I do not say this because I'm seeking a gift, he reminds them like he did in verse 11 I'm not in need I'm not asking for more money all right so he's very careful all right paul reiterates his lack of desire for personal gain o'brien in his commentary writes the advantage that it accrues to them accrues to the philippians as a result of their generous giving is god's blessing in their lives and by which they continually grow in the graces of Christ until the parousia, or until the end, the second coming. What uh, was highlighted here is there's financial verbiage being used to equate the spiritual life. And Paul's saying, you're making investments that are going to reap eternal dividends, Uh, Ron Blue and his group run with that sucker, don't they? Um, And rightly so. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 17. I seek the credit that abounds to your account. And then he says in verse 18, I've received everything and I have plenty. I have all I need because I've received. And then he mentions Epaphroditus. They are what have... Uh, brought him joy and his major concern centers on the givers not the gift this is a great model i think for those raising support and missions isn't it Um, his focus the lord's going to provide we don't need to ask for money there's time and place i'm not saying that but paul's focus it's on on the people epaphroditus and others right And that is passion isn't on things, but that they glorify God. Right? What's he rejoicing over? Their fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. Right? And why do I need to worry? God will supply all my needs. That's what Paul is highlighting time and time again. One of the questions that I had in your notes is how can Paul be so certain that God's going to meet their needs? How can he be so certain of that? Who said he would? God said said he would. Experience. Anything else? You're filling in the gap there? Yeah. I mean, Paul says, I I can look at my own life and see how God has sustained. And I know God's word is true. I've seen it in the past. Paul, oh, I don't know. I, I, anyone have a gesture? I would think probably, I don't know, 40s, 50s, I don't know. Somewhere in that age, most likely. Uh, that could be debated. That question was, what is his age? Well, Paul breaks out in verse 20 in this doxology because he's assuring them, listen, not only know God will provide He's going to honor you all for all eternity, right? To him be the glory. It's through and by him, etc. And then he sends the greetings. The Caesar's household is not that. This is the emperor's wife. This is most likely the slaves, the soldiers, and the freed people within the household. Um, I should say the estate, because uh, and remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. These are veterans, and they are people probably who have served and hung out with members of the imperial household. But what, that, what does that tell us? The gospel has already reached the upper echelons of society so early in the ministry. I want to close, uh, and we'll just go through this briefly, but um, there's a little pearl that was written many, many years ago in the 1600s called A Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Burroughs. There's another one called Divine Contentment, uh, by Thomas Watson, which I think is even better. Uh, I love both of them. Burroughs, though, he has a list of 21 ways that you can be content in life. Well, we're, thankfully, we're not going to go through all 21. And I've inserted a few of my own and adapted his. And so I got down to seven. So let me give you seven ways to be content, all right? <clears throat> and uh, I think even coming into this Christmas season, uh, being content something we may all need. Number one, <clears throat> consider, and I, and I mentioned in all our wants and inclinations to be discontent, consider the greatness of the mercies that we have and the actual worth of those things we lack. Um, my daughter in particular, both my kids, particularly my daughter, has no problem coming up with a Christmas list. <laughs> all right. Uh, we, we try to curtail that in a little bit. Uh, and and talk about what do you really need and what do you want and there's a time for want but anyway first timothy six paul reminds little timothy we brought nothing into this world and you're not going to take it out right psalm 32 8 turn there this this text psalm 32 8 is so powerful 32.8, 32, eight. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. Wow, isn't that, isn't that awesome? Who's speaking? God, right? I will counsel you with my eye upon you, which is a great promise, but also it means let him lead, <laughs> get out of the way, right? Consider the greatness of God's mercy in your life. Um, learning the secrets of contentment. That's one. Let me give you another. Remember that our suffering in this world is brief. 2 Corinthians 4, it's but for a moment. And that's Paul's words, by the way. He's been imprisoned at this point already. He's been beaten several times, etc., etc. And he says, listen, the momentary light suffering pales in comparison to what awaits us. Third. How do we be content? I think reflect on those who've gone before us, right? Those heroes of the faith, those who've taken a stand. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. uh, uh, There's a reason it's in a book that stresses perseverance. (laughs) It's saying, look at these guys. If they can do it, so can you, right? And so reflect on the heroes of the past. Fourth, note that trials in the past have actually been some of the greatest moments in our walks with the Lord right so when discontentment comes crashing in i think wait a minute it's when those difficult times that i've often turned to the lord or i've seen his hand of mercy uh genesis 50 is uh joseph's words to his brothers you meant it for good i could have been discontent in prison etc but rather i saw god's hand i'm sure he had his moments Um, but still at the end of the day he looks to the Lord and he's faithful. <clears throat> Five, take seriously the challenge of dying to self. Col- Colossians 3, Paul says, put to death the things of the, the former life. The, the lust of the flesh, the immorality, all this stuff. He says, put it to, to, to kill it. All right? Do away with it. Because when you entertain it, that's often when discontentment comes. All right? Six, walk in humility. Jerry Bridges uh, wrote, and it's at the bottom of your notes, contentment is one of the most distinguishing traits of the godly person because a godly person has his heart focused on God rather than on possessions, position, or power. And James talks about being humble before our God. And uh, there's a quote that I'll have you, you can read on your own, the very first, on the first page by Watson, which is dynamite. But an arrogant person will never be content. (laughs) And then finally is to pray fervently, right? Pray fervently. James 5, uh, if anyone's suffering, pray. So these are seven. There's more than that. As I said, you could get bros and read all 21. Um, But I I think these seven will be enough for us to work on (laughs) until January 16th. Uh, how do you be content? And maybe it's just me, but I I find that discontentment is one of the dragons I'm often trying to slay. Um, It's like, Lord, just help me to rest in you. And yet, you know, um, and so the challenge this week for further thought, if you want to work through that, is to address the matter of contentment in your own life. I don't think that it's because people don't know the secret of contentment in the church. I think it's, we just don't want to tap into it. <laughs> and so you, you can read through that and uh, challenge you to do so. Questions or comments on this rich text? Paul, I think again, is wrapping up the themes that he's addressed, particularly joy, unity, and rightful conduct under, under a larger umbrella of contentment. Uh, And he uses his own life as an example to say, listen, we look to the Lord. He is the giver of all things, right? Thank you for your gift. Thank you for being a conduit, let's say, of God's grace, right? And together we strive to live for him. And no wonder he can say at the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.